I'm Jana Marin, and you're listening to More to the Story, the podcast that's all about creative nonfiction and the power of sharing your personal story. Tell me a story, tell me true. I want to know what happened to you. The stars are all out and the night is so blue. Tell me a story and I'll tell mine to you. Welcome to episode number three of More to the Story, a show that is all about something near and dear to my heart, telling true stories and finding the courage to share them with the world. In addition to this podcast, I also publish a literary magazine called Under the Gumtree, which is dedicated to creative nonfiction and visual art. The magazine is published quarterly in digital and print. If you enjoy the readings on this show, I encourage you to check out the complete stories by purchasing a single issue or getting a subscription. Your subscription directly supports writers and their work. Digital subscriptions are $2 a month and print subscriptions are $7 a month. All that info is online at underthegumtree.com. In the last episode of More to the Story, we heard from one of Under the Gumtree's contributors who has been nominated for a Pushcart Prize, and I'm continuing that theme today with my guest, Kate Washington. Kate is a writer based in Sacramento, California. Her work has appeared in such publications as The Washington Post, Yoga Journal, Sunset, and The Bellingham Review, and she is a contributing writer at Sacktown Magazine. She is also the co-founder of Roan Press, a small nonprofit literary press. Kate's essay, Promises Like Pie Crust, appears in the October 2014 issue of Under the Gumtree, and it has been nominated for a Pushcart Prize. Before we get to the interview, here is Kate reading an excerpt from that essay. Promises Like Pie Crust Nothing holds so much promise in a kitchen as a pie cooling on a wire rack, lumpy with sugared fruit, drippy juices pooling, translucent sheets of toasty, fat-bound flour sloughing off at the sloughing off the crust at a touch. Pies for summer weekends, pies for potlucks, pies for holidays, pies for no reason at all. Pie means my mother and my grandmother and the kitchen I grew up in, wallpapered with brown and mustard-hued daisies. Pie means picking waspy fruit in a hot, itchy orchard in a part of rural California few people have ever even heard of. But pie's promise is often broken. So much can go wrong, especially with the crust. Too much water, too much flour, too much fat. Any of these will ruin you. The dough will stick and smear if it isn't cold enough, or crack if it's too cold, or just fall apart. My mother taught me to make pie crust early. It was a family tradition, and while I sometimes got it right, I often didn't. Once, at age 10 or so, I couldn't get the crust to cohere. I threw it all over our kitchen in a fit of rage, a shower of flour and fat cut with two knives until it resembled small peas, as the classic instruction goes. My mother, who had ruined her share of pies, was more understanding than my tantrum deserved and helped me clean up and make a new crust. My mother used the recipe in the old Fanny Farmer cookbook with the golden cover. I have inherited her book, and it automatically flips open to the floury, annotated page. My mother may have been a traditionalist who baked pies from scratch, but she was also a math and computer science major and a computer programmer, and she worked out precise measurements for 10 and 8-inch pies for single and double crusts. The symmetry of using pie for the calculations pleased her. 
She would not stand for clumsy, rough doubling of the recipe, which might result in too much crust or not enough when she rolled it out. Too much would have meant more pie cookies for me and my brother, but she always eked out pie cookies anyway, rolling out extra dough and trimmings in any old shape, sprinkling it with cinnamon sugar, cutting the irregular round into wedges and baking it on a warped oven-blocked cookie sheet until the edges were brown and the middle of the crust blistered. Whenever my mother made a pie, I snitched the bland, crisp, salty, sweet pie cookies all day long. Crisco was my mother's and grandmother's fat of choice. No butter for them, though I use it now for the flavor it adds, and salt the only flavoring in their crusts. Sugar came only in the filling, though never much. My maternal great-grandmother, according to family tradition, made her pie crust too short. My maternal grandmother's crust was perfect. She wasn't the usual grandmotherly sort. She was five foot ten, made to seem taller by a frosted bouffant that she had combed out twice a week. When she and my grandfather traveled to Hong Kong and London and Thailand, her first concern was always to find a hairdresser. And she always wore a long gold rope necklace and jangling bracelets dripping with heavy gold coins. Fourteen years after her death, I still wear that gold rope necklace and it still smells like her perfume. She was renowned in the family for her lemon meringue pie, a showy golden number that was a lot like her. My mother made all kinds of pie. My favorite was the apricot pie she made in early summer, its modest, lumpy layers tasting deeply of happiness and loss, thanks to the bittersweet tang of intense orange halves of collapsed, homegrown stone fruit, slightly almond-scented. The apricot trees my father's father planted at the edge of his almond orchard are long dead. My parents long divorced, but that pie's memory haunts me. My mother, too, embodied a complex balance of bitter and sweet, suffering from bipolar disorder marked by bouts of crippling depression, controlled for decades by lithium. For every perfect pie, for every moment of teaching me how to hold the rolling pin just so, there had been a countervailing slump of despair or moment of rage. However bad she felt, though, she could usually rally for a holiday or potluck, and she usually promised to bring a pie keyed to the season. Eggnog pie was for Christmas, a fluff of gelatin-set whipped cream full of bourbon. Sour cream and raisin pie was another holiday offering, a gritty gray, old-fashioned California pie with the raisins cut in half and a meringue top. It was her grandmother's recipe, and she told me that her job as a small child used to be to cut the raisins in half and dig out the seeds back in the days before raisins came already seedless. Golden summer pie was another whipped cream gelatin concoction with nectarine slices suspended in an orange-scented fluff. She cut that recipe out of our local newspaper. In spring, she made rhubarb pie and lemon rhubarb pie and strawberry rhubarb pie. Late summer meant Gravenstein apple pie, for which we bought lugs of the whiny early fruit in West Sonoma County near our family cabin, and peach and plum with walnuts in it. For Thanksgiving, there was pumpkin. The secret was the applejack, she always said, an apple cranberry and pear pie with a custard cream layer. One year, we went to Kansas for Thanksgiving to visit my father's extended family in their rambling rural farmhouse. The main thing I remember about our Midwestern Thanksgiving is that the pies were store-bought, and my mother was genuinely shocked. Thank you, Kate, and welcome to More to the Story. Thank you. Well, we're here to talk about creative nonfiction and this essay, of course. So let's get started with a little bit of background on your writing life and how you came to writing creative nonfiction and what draws you to the genre. 
That's a big question. Um, my writing background is really varied. I've been everything from a freelance magazine writer, which has been kind of my professional life for the last 10 plus years. Um, to an academic writer. I was in, um, graduate school for much of my twenties, um, and, uh, came to creative nonfiction as a serious pursuit somewhat, somewhat later. I also do write some fiction, but I'm concentrating more on the creative nonfiction these days. Um, this, this piece actually kind of, for me, encapsulates all of those, um, all of those backgrounds. Uh, my my academic writing was on 19th century British literature, and the title of this piece refers to a 19th century British poem. Um, my professional writing is as a food writer, and, and obviously this piece is heavily concerned with food. But um, what I've turned to most, I would say, in my creative nonfiction writing life is memoir and thinking about family. A lot of that um, was prompted by my mother's death, though I had been interested in the genre and, and working in it in a smaller way since long before that. And the roots of this piece were just a sort of one-off essay that I wrote probably more than 10 years ago about my family's history with, with pie and then um, added to it and augmented it many years later. So it's gone through a lot of different, different rounds of revisions. Um, but, uh, yeah, I've, I've kind of run the gamut, I would say, in my writing life, but my primary interest right now is creative nonfiction. And it's obvious that food is a large part of your life, and you men- mentioned in the essay that you were growing up on an orchard and your family has had land and has um, grown and harvested food over the years. So I'm curious to know about um, how you got into writing about food specifically and whether your upbringing was an influence in that career choice for you? Um, you know, it may have been connected though. I never really, it wasn't like I was raised to go into that field because of it, but I think that we did have a strong interest in food and that was part of our roots. You know, my, my mother obviously was a dedicated baker and was a good though, you know, sort of, she was a home cook for sure. Um, nobody in my family has ever been a, um, professional cook or really professionally involved with food in that way. But, um, you know, we always had, um, fresh and seasonal fruits and vegetables. My dad and my grandfather both had huge gardens and, um, fruit plot at our almond orchard far more than anyone in our family could eat. But we, we ate very, seasonally and in, I think in ways that are now, you know, the trend, you know, and we just did that cause that's what a lot of what we had. Um, and, um, there were huge boxes of, you know, flats of peaches around all summer long, um, things like that, or we would get the, um, we would get almonds back from, from the processor after my dad's crop, um, went to be harvested or after harvest, after it went to the processor, we would get the different kinds of almonds back. So we had, um, you know, a strong connection with different kinds of seasonal foods. And that was something I certainly missed and was conscious of lacking, you know, when I went away to college or when I was in, um, when I was in grad school and not 
as close to home, didn't have the access to the really great fruits and vegetables as I'd used to have. Um, in grad school, I was just, or since long before that, actually, I've long been interested in cooking and in food and, you know, exploring different recipes, coming up with recipes. And I sort of fell into food writing when I decided after, you know, five years in graduate school, not to pursue an academic career. Um, I was much more interested in, in editing and writing, um, and wasn't as comfortable as a teacher. So decided not to stick with the academic path that I had gone to graduate school to do. And, ended up basically being fortunate to get a job copy editing at a new food magazine in San Francisco at the time that this was about, um, the year 2000. And, um, you know, I passed their copy editing test and they were a tiny staff and they hired me and that kind of gave me an in to, to food writing that I'd been wanting to do. You know, I was able to do a few pieces, you know, and more as I worked on the staff of that magazine, um, after they moved to New York, I was fortunate to get a job editing at Sunset Magazine in the food department, and that kind of um, pulled me along the path of continuing in, in food writing. Well, your connection to food is very obvious, and it comes through in your writing. Um, your food descriptions are absolutely lovely and very poetic and easy to read, I guess, is, is a good way to put it, because I would say as someone who doesn't write food descriptions very well, I'm always really impressed when I see it done well and wonder about, oh, how does a person cultivate that type of awareness around something so specific? And so I'm wondering a little bit about the transition between the physical aspect of making and baking and handling food and then shifting to a more mechanical technical practice of writing and crafting those descriptions and so I'm curious to know if you have any sort of process that helps you cultivate that awareness or what what is that transition like for you? Well, first of all, thank you for those are for your very kind words. I'm I'm really flattered. Um, I'm not sure about the process. That's that's an interesting question. Um, I you know I've read quite a lot of food writing and um, you know both models that I really admire and other you know I think it's very easy in in food writing or really any other kind to slip into cliches and formula. And so, you know, you read examples you admire and then you read the counter examples and try to be more like, more like the ones you admire without being derivative. But, um, one of the places that I think has helped me in, in being precise in food writing, um, is that a lot of my career has also been about recipe development, which is, very descriptive. It's almost technical, a technical form of food writing, because you have to say exactly what's happening with the food. You have to give precise, you know, cook until golden brown or brown, or you have to, to describe the outcome you want so that people can replicate the results that you're after and not, you know, write you a nasty letter about how the recipe didn't work. You have to really, I think, hone that ability to describe the food in a way and describe the actions you're taking around it. It, you know, you can't 
necessarily be as creative because you're fit, usually fitting into a predetermined kind of style for how the recipes are written. Um, though many, you know, many recipe writers don't do that and, and write much more kind of poetic or, or expansive or creative types of recipes. But I've, I've typically written for places that have a house style for their recipes, but you do really try to, um, give your descriptions a kind of universal and easy to recognize edge that people can grab onto and, and picture exactly what you're talking about when they approach that recipe. And sort of, as you were, as you were asking me the question, it occurred to me that that, that training may have been helpful in, in, uh, developing that skill. I love that you use the word precision because it is a precise science like you're talking about when you're developing recipes and you use that word in the essay as well to talk about your mother and her kind of obsession with being super precise with the recipes and such um and the pies and the symbolism of the pie crust for the seemingly fragility of a promise so when you were writing the essay and crafting it I'm wondering a little bit about your intention with using that reference to mm. the Christina Rossetti poem and how that factored into your writing, whether it was someplace that you started or if the title and the reference came in as you were crafting mm -hmm. the essay. Um, so talk a little bit about how the essay itself kind of came together for you and that reference and how you decided to work in the reference to the Christina Rossetti poem. That came, um, somewhat later, uh, probably the first, the section that I read is mostly though it, it, it's changed significantly though. That was kind of the original heart of the piece. Um, just kind of a description of the, um, of the pies in my family. And I think originally when I wrote it, it was not long after my grandmother died. Um, and she died in 2000. Um, so it was in, in the maybe three or four years after, after her death. Um, my mother died in 2010 and, um, I began writing much more about her about a year after her death. So there was material about her and her pies in the original sort of mini piece that I'd never really done anything with. And it, it was kind of a vignette and I wasn't really sure what to do with it, but it was living on my hard drive and, and something I just looked at and, and would look at every now and again and think, Oh, I don't really have a home or have a, have a narrative for that. And as I started, um, thinking about and writing about the impact of, of my mother's death much more. And, you know, after my grandmother and then my mother died, my mother was almost 65 when she died. Um, she would actually be, uh, turning 70 next week if she were still alive. Um, you know, and I was in my thirties and suddenly I felt like I am sort of the matriarch of this family in a strange way. Our family had gotten very small. Um, I'd never expected, the generations before me to be gone when I was so young and when my, my two daughters were extremely young. And I started really thinking about what it was that my mother and my grandmother had passed down to me. And I kind of returned to that 
fragmentary essay that I'd started so long ago and started looking at it and thought, and the, the promises like Piecrest title really came to me when I started thinking about the circumstances around my mother's death, because she died by suicide after this very long battle with um, bipolar disorder. And she had, um, about a month before her death, she had threatened suicide. And she and I, and my brother had talked about, you know, call a hotline, do the call us. We were checking in on her and she had, she had promised me, you know, that she wouldn't make an attempt on her life without talking to me. And she broke that promise. And I don't blame her for, for doing so. I, I've spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, why that would be. Um, I mean, initially I, I did, and I was angry. Um, but, um, she was not one to break a promise, not ever, not my whole life. And she was, you know, almost painfully honest a lot of the time, you know, she couldn't, she could not tell a lie. Um, and, and the, the fact that she broke that promise to me spoke to me more of her pain and the despair that she was in. Like she, if she could have kept it, she would. And I think she couldn't. And thinking back on that, on that poem and, um, you know, it has this line that I, I think I quote in the piece that's, you know, keep we both our liberties never, never false and never true. She, um, and, um, she, she kind of had to keep her liberties. I was, I was just, you know, that, that poem in some ways isn't, you know, it's more of a love poem, but I think some of the things about promises and the keeping and breaking of promises can apply to any human relationship. Um, I also possibly hidden and not, you know, in the piece and it never really surfaces, um, is another Christina Rossetti poem, um, called Goblin Market that is all about the temptations of different fruits. And it's a very, um, I thought about it a lot when I was writing this and writing about the different kind of fruit pies. Um, Rossetti has this piece about these two sisters. It's a long and it, long poem that feels almost like a fairy tale or a nursery rhyme, but, um, but the themes are quite adult about temptation and the goblins tempt these two sisters with, um, all these luscious, unbelievable fruits. And they're beautifully described in, in sort of short rhyming lines. Um, and one sister falls prey to temptation and the other one doesn't, but just her descriptions of fruits were in my mind a bit as well when I was writing and revising this piece. Anyway, that's a long answer to your question, but um, <laughs> goes around. It, so. That's okay. That's okay. One thing that I really appreciate about your use of this poem is it's a really lovely example of how writing is always in conversation with each other. And by that, I mean, when we write, we're almost always responding in some way to the writers who have come before us, whether directly or indirectly. Exactly. Yeah. Which is something very special about the act of writing, I think. And in particular, this poem, I find your use of it very interesting because it sort of expands the meaning of the title since the poem itself doesn't deal with pies with the exception of the title. Mm -hmm. 
you know, I, I, when I was thinking about the poem, when I knew we were going to have this conversation and, and talk about that and was rereading it. And one of the things that struck me is when I looked back at the, the last stanza, um, and if you don't mind, I'll just briefly read it. Um, the last stanza says, if you promised you might grieve for lost liberty again, if I promised, I believe I should fret to break the chain. Let us be the friends we were, nothing more but nothing less. Many thrive on frugal fare who would perish of excess. And to me, that last um, that last pair of lines, many thrive on frugal fare who would perish of excess, um, does bring the pies into the poem a bit. It made me think about how in Victorian times, a pie was kind of a symbol for, for richness. And many people thought that pie crust might actually upset, you know, give you dyspepsia in the Victorian <laughs> phrase, you know, from, from its richness and you might be better off eating something more simple. And I, I thought that was an interesting, a really interesting metaphor that she used for the relationships, you know, very subtle metaphor, but like stay away from the rich pie crust of the more complicated promise laden relationship like that would, that might hurt you to have those promises. Whereas the frugal fare, the less, the less enmeshed, um, the, the relationships that are, are less difficult and less tortured may actually, or the easier you may thrive on those. Um, and, you know, Rossetti was someone who, who, you know, lived, um, lived as a single woman, you know, and she didn't, in some ways, I think, you know, I'm not sure if a lot of American readers know her well, but I, I think of her almost as akin to like a, um, a British version of Emily Dickinson or something. There's a little bit in common there, but, um, you know, I, I don't think it's always possible to separate out our human relationships, or it's very often not possible to separate our, out our human relationships to the no promise frugal fare of, you know, solitude and making no promises. You know, I've thought about, you know, with, with my own mother, like in some ways, you know, simply having and raising a child is a promise to that child, a promise to be there. And it's a promise that all parents sooner or later, or almost all parents sooner or later have to break to their children in one way or another. I mean, few, do so deliberately in, you know, or, or by their own volition. Um, but all eventually have, have to die and and leave their kids in one way or another, whether the kids are adult or tiny or ready or not, you know, and you have to, you know, send, send your kids away from you at some point in any case, you know, that, and those relationships are so, so fraught, but also so fragile, but kind of necessarily so, I think. Mm, You know, that makes me think about the idea of promises. And I think we all try to keep them for as long as we are able. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking about what you write about in the essay with regards to your mother and the point when she starts to succumb more seriously to the struggle and the battle that she was having with bipolar 
and she sort of loses her faculties for baking as well as she did at one point. And um, it's almost, I read that as it's the beginning of the unraveling of that promise. Mm -hmm. She's getting to a point where she's no longer able to keep that promise to you. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that, you know, the dessert that she made for, I think the last Christmas that she was alive, I think it was for like a kind of a substitute Christmas dinner. We had a couple days before Christmas. She had like made an angel food cake and then she'd found like some crema, you know, the Mexican type of sour cream that was like in the back of her fridge and it had clearly gone off. Like it was not okay. And she made like an orange sour cream sauce out of it. And it was just like, it, I was like, what's happened to my mom? You know? And, and when you're at a holiday dessert, you know, a holiday dinner and like somebody brings out the dessert and then she had this whole story about how she couldn't let the crema go to waste and she was sure it was fine. And I was like, Oh God, this is really like, things are really off here. You know, it was, it it was almost like a signal of, Oh dear. Uh, And I knew, you know, she was not well, but that something about that, like really awful, you know, and the angel food cake was tough and hadn't risen and it wasn't the way she normally baked at all. And I was like, Oh, uh, you know, uh Oh, this is, this is really not good. I wanted to ask about the last line from the section you read, which says, you're writing about your Midwestern Thanksgiving and it says the pies were store bought Mm -hmm. and your mother was genuinely shocked. So it seems to me that the pie baking, well, just baking in general for your mother is almost like a religious ritual for her. And I wonder if that is one aspect of her life where she felt like she could maintain a sense of control very probably. I, I would think she would. Um, and you know, her, her struggle was sort of maybe intermittent is the, the best way to put it in the sense that her first big episode was, um, when I was about seven or like the, the time when she was diagnosed, I'm sure she had um, difficulties before that. And when I was about seven and my brother was four and, um, she was able to get some help and, Lithium was a relatively incredibly new, but relatively new treatment at that time for bipolar disorder. And it worked extremely well for her. Um, it's not so for everybody, um, but it did work very well for her for quite a long time. And, um, she had other, there were other struggles kind of along the way, but it, it wasn't really until she went off of, she went off of the lithium for various kind of other medical reasons because it's very, eventually very hard on the body. Um, and then never really found a a regimen that, that worked as well for her again. Um, but, um, she had, she had kind of, she had brought things under control, but you know, she was, she, I think she, you know, struggled with the, she was, she was a very good parent and she, you know, she did the very best she could with the resources she had, I would say, but she, you know, she had some challenges in, in parenting and running family life and, um, you know, trying to keep control on what was going on around her was indeed a a big thing for her. And I think, I think there, for a lot of people, um, 
there's kind of almost a divide, like some people are cooks and some people are bakers. And my mom was a good cook, but she was a really good baker. And being a really good baker is all about following the recipe, following the rules, measuring everything, keeping the numbers right. And my mother excelled in those areas. She did like to, she liked to have a formula to follow and know that things would come out okay. I mean, she was, I think, you know, that's why she was a math major. She liked the precision. Like she liked to know if an answer was going to be right. You know, she was a computer programmer. The computer always followed the rules she gave it, huh, you know, and it was very unlike, you know, that's what, that's what coding <laughs> is, is about kids. Like, you know, my brother and I, we did not do that necessarily. We tried, but we, you know, we didn't. So, and, um, you know, I, I, I was like an English and history major. And I think she was always a little bit like, well, but you know, the essay, like the essay you think is great. Like the professor could see, could see it as completely, you know, wrongheaded and you don't, you don't know whether it's going to be right or not. Like when you finished a math exam, like you kind of knew whether you'd done it or not. So I think there's definitely something to that, that, um, she could, she could kind of control and have precision around that. And my, she, I have the recipe card that she took from my, she copied from my grandmother, from my grandmother's lemon meringue pie. And it's got like underlined like three times, like do not double recipe because if you double it, you know, it uses cornstarch. And if you double it, like it doesn't quite cook in the right way. And I remember like the time the lemon meringue pie that my mom made, which, you know, it was my grandmother's specialty. It didn't set up because she doubled it. And it was like, never again. Nobody's ever doing that again. (laughs) (laughs) We're not going to make that mistake twice. She would, she was not happy when the formulas didn't pan out, you know? (laughs) Sure. Sure. I can imagine. So one thing that I like to ask about when we're talking about creative nonfiction is what happens when we share stories. So now that you've been writing about your mother and her death, I'm curious what sort of response, if anything, you have been receiving now that you're releasing these stories out into the world. You know, I've gotten some and I've always gotten really nice responses from people. Um, I was, I was hesitant, you know, to put some of these, to put some of these out for, for some reasons. One of the things that has been a bit of a surprise to me, um, you know, a lot of people in our culture just don't talk much about suicide in particular or depression generally, mental illness more generally. And the number of people I already knew who, I did not know had also lost a parent or someone they were very close to, to suicide is, is high. Um, and so that's been, you know, that's been a, a sad surprise, but a meaningful one. And I've had a few people, you know, respond in ways where they said that, you know, my pieces about my mother and, and my thinking about her, um, you know, we're, we're moving to them and that, that is really, that really means the world to me, you know, that to, if I can share my story, which was certainly a painful one to live, you know, to live through and have it in some small way, 
you know, connect with somebody else or, or help with a pain that they're experiencing or we, or that person and I can connect that really, I think is, you know, shows what these stories can, can do for us and is a big part of, you know, why I'm writing. I'm, I can, I can go to therapy to work it out for myself, but to, to put it on the page in a way that's a little, that I hope is a little more artful than the, just the, the straight processing, you know, the reason I do that is, is in hopes of connecting whether personally or just on the page with people who've, you know, struggled with grief in whatever guise it may be, um, or, you know, struggle with, with mental illness again in whatever guise. I love that. And it just, it makes me so happy to hear you say that because that's the whole reason why I started under the gum tree was Mm -hmm. to provide a place for stories like this to find a home and to connect with readers, people who need to read them and find the support and the encouragement, even from far away, even if it's a person who we don't know personally, but we can read the shared experience and gain some hope from that shared experience. And I hope that continues for you in your writing. So do you have something new that you're working on that you can tell us about? Yeah, I've been working on um, something that I'm thinking of as like either a very long essay or a short book. Um, And it's some personal history, but a lot of kind of ecological and geographical writing. And it is about a creek that runs by my hometown and has its head headwaters, um, very close to where my dad and my brother and I have a cabin together in an area of the mountains in the Sierra Nevada in Northern California. And I spent a lot of time in growing up. And so the, the long essay is, or short book is in five parts or five chapters, um, following kind of the different sections of the Creek. The Creek is called Butte Creek. Um, and it's, it is part of the Sacramento river drainage. Um, it's a fairly pristine watershed that it does have a couple of dams, but it's, um, it still has a spring Chinook salmon run, um, and it's a part, a small part of the world that means a great deal to me. And so I'm kind of weaving together some personal narrative, um, with kind of explorations and, and thinking just about the landscape and the, the course of that Creek. So I'm, that's what I'm working on now. That sounds really fascinating and I can't wait to see it or I hope I get to see. I'm sure you will. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Tell us where folks can find you online. My Twitter is at uh, Washington Kate. Um, and uh, that's perfect. Twitter is perfect. Everyone can find you there easily enough. Thank you, Kate, for joining us today. It's been so great to talk to you. Thank you so much, Dana. I really appreciate it. Head on over to Twitter and let us know what you like about this episode. Give us a shout out. Just Jana and Washington Kate. You can also visit Kate's website, kawashington.com, to find out more about her work. 
Next time on More to the Story, I talk with Under the Gumtree contributor Samuel Ottman about his upcoming memoir. To subscribe to this podcast, go to iTunes.com slash more to the story. And while you're there, leave a review. I love feedback. I love hearing from you. And it helps with the ratings. More to the Story was produced out of my home office in Sacramento, California, with technical and audio support from my brother, TJ Santoro. Jeremy Marin, yes, my husband, he wrote and performed the theme song. You can find us online at moretothestorypodcast.com. Follow Under the Gumtree on Twitter at UnderGumtree. I'm Jana Marlies Marin, at just Jana on Twitter. Jana Marlies everywhere else. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you soon on the next episode of More to the Story. Tell me a story. Tell me truth. I want to know what happened to you. The stars are all out and the night is so blue. Tell me a story and I'll tell mine to you. balcony drinking up our wine talking about the way that we used to live our lives the words in the books man they're nothing but lies i look into your eyes and you look into mine you say tell me a story tell me true stars are all out and the night is so blue. Tell me a story and I, I'll tell mine too.